Good morning, Good Shepherd. It's good to be with all of you again. Uh, we're going to continue our trek through Revelation uh, 12, 13, and 14. This morning we've been looking at these chapters primarily in light of the idea or the, the question of the, of the media, the news media. And uh, Revelation uh, 12 through 14 present us with a worldview, a way of seeing our world and locating very, not only ourselves, but various powers, various institutions and, and uh, cultural structures within, uh, within that worldview. So this morning we're going to continue that journey. I want to start by, by telling a story of, uh, of my, from my childhood. As a kid, um, I can remember on a number of occasions when I would come to my mom and I would ask her for something. It might be for food, it might be for money, it might be later on to, to borrow the car. And on a number of occasions, I would ask her, and, and, I, and I, uh, she would, this is um, something that she would often do, she called me the great manipulator, the great manipulator, because, uh, and, and I'm sure that most of you can sympathize with her, perhaps, but, um, and hopefully the Lord has used those, those, those skills of manipulation, if I can talk, skills of manipulation, uh, to a, a good end as a preacher, um, not always, but hopefully more uh, more often than not. But she would call me the great manipulator because I would come to her in a very smooth way. I would walk up to her and say, Mom, I love you. And of course, she would look at me suspiciously and say, Bruce, what do you want, right? And I would be very nice, very smooth, very gentle at first. And then she would say no, and then I would try a different tack, a different angle, and she would say no again. And then when I realized that I had been denied repeatedly, uh, and then that, then denied finally, and my mom would put her foot down, and she would say no more, this is it, end of discussion. And with that, she would actually send me out of the house. Whether it was any season of the year, if it was snowing, she would, she would, she would send me out to play, uh, casting me out of the house, if you will. And I remember on several occasions that as I was leaving the house, as I was going outside to put on my shoes, I could feel the anger just building up within me as I, as I left, realizing that I had been completely defeated. And in, my, in, in that defeat, there was a sense of, of defiance, a sense of anger, a sense of, I was, if there was anything I could do to... Uh, to somehow sabotage things or cause trouble, that's, that's what I was going to do. And that, that sort of story captures in a, in a very, very simple way, perhaps a silly way, but I think a very real way, that the portrait of what we have uh, toward the end of chapter 12 in Revelation, we see a picture of, of, as we spoke of last week, of deep conflict, of a conflict that we saw that, was in, that involved a woman who represented the people of God, idealized the church as she is supposed to be, a woman who is a life, bear, excuse me, a life, um, a light bearing source, as well as a life bearing source. That is, uh, the church as an origin of light in the sense of purity and truth and hope, but also the uh, the church as a source of of life and a life at great cost. And so we see this woman as, as a woman who uh, has this clothed with a son, and she's giving birth to a child, a child who will, who will bring a, a new era of peace, a new, a new reign, a new kingdom uh, into the cosmos. 
And, uh, and so with this, uh, with this woman is also a dragon who appears, who's waiting to consume the child. And clearly there, there is this, this opposition between the woman uh, or a conflict between the woman and the dragon. And, and as chapter 12 goes on, we see the, a battle that breaks out in heaven uh, between uh, the, the, the devil and his, his uh, followers or his, his uh, angels and, um, uh, and those on the other side of the heaven's, uh, heaven's armies. And we learn that the evil one is cast out. And as we spoke of last week, that this battle portrayed in a martial way is actually a legal battle, a battle between Satan, who is called the accuser, uh, the one who is, presents a case against the people of God, presenting all of their sins, all of their wrongs before God. And of course, a God uh, looking to the Lamb, looking to Jesus Christ, looking to the blood that, um, that, that the Lamb has spilled and to atone for the saints, to atone for the woman, and, and, and such that the accuser has no case. The prosecution is, you, if you will, cast out. The idea is that in the highest court of the cosmos, the prosecution's case, in fact, even the prosecutor himself, has been thrown out. Okay, do you see it? There's a, there's a finality to the decision. There's no going back. It's done. It's over. So, and yet, the prosecutor... Uh, have, even though thrown, even though his case has been thrown out, he himself has been thrown out. As we're going to see in these verses, verses 13 and on into chapter 13, that prosecutor now turns to propaganda. That is to say that though, that, that though the dragon has been defeated, he is defiant and resorts to deception. And I want to give, a, if I can give a, a, just a few brief analogies to this idea. For example, after the Civil War, there were, there were slave owners in the South who, of course, had been defeated on the battle line. Right? In battle, they'd been defeated, and yet they still remained defiant, and they delayed the outcome of the victory. How? Through deception, through a lie. That is to say, after the war, many slavers, this is unbelievable, many slave owners in the South simply refused to tell their slaves that they were free. One Afro-American economist and historian writes this, he says, quote, in the, in, the, in the immediate aftermath of the war, the newly freed blacks were so inexperienced and so vulnerable that some slave-owning whites continued to hold them as slaves by keeping, how? By keeping the Emancipation Proclamation from them. Isn't that incredible? So we see, even though that these, these slave owners were defeated in battle, they still were defiant through, by means of deception. And I think that there's something very, very true to the early church there in this sense. The early church was vulnerable. It was inexperienced. And the evil one was there ready, wanting to use deception to hide the, the, the consequentiality, the finality, if you will, of the, the battle that had been won at the cross. To give another example, in 1954, the Supreme Court, in a very famous case called Brown versus Board of Education, 
declared that the, segreg- that the segregation of the Jim Crow South was a grave injustice. And yet, as one scholar, I mean, as we'll see here, what happens, what happens in the wake for the next 10 years after 1954 in the South? Well, virtually nothing. As one scholar notes, he says, quote, the Supreme Court's 1954 decision was a moral victory. He continues, outside of a few border cities, very little desegregation occurred during the first decade after Brown versus Board of Education. One historian and statistician, a guy named Gerald Rosenberg, he puts it this way. He says, the the statistics from the southern states are truly amazing. For 10 years, from 1954 to 1964, virtually nothing happened. In other words, the idea is this, that the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, has declared that segregation is a gross injustice, that it is a lie. And yet the defeated, those, all, all who are, are, um, has stand to lose in that decision, simply go on as if nothing had happened whatsoever. Imagine what it would be like to be Afro-American in the South in the wake of that. You have this wondrous victory in the highest court of the land, and yet everyone around you continues as if nothing had happened. And that's exactly the picture or the feeling, the experience that the early Christians had had. The Jesus had come, the Messiah had come, he had lived a life of obedience, he had died a death of sacrifice and substitution, he had risen from the grave, defeating death, he had ascended into heaven, he was reigning on high, and the, the evil one had been thrown out of, of, of heaven, and yet what? feels like nothing had happened. Life continued to go on as before, and, that, and, and here in these verses, uh, John wants to talk about that. He wants to address the, this, the reality of an evil one who's been cast out of heaven and yet continues to sow deception on the earth. So let me, with that, let me, let, me, um, let me read these verses here. I think it's important, let me just say this first, it's important that, that, that what we're seeing here, this, this sense of defeat of the evil one, is of tremendous consequence to God's people because it means that she, that is the woman or God's people, she is innocent not only in the highest court, but in all human courts. In other words, a sense of freedom there, that she has been tried and forever freed. And that was to make the earliest Christians confident brazen, unafraid to be condemned by the institutions, by the, um, the, the, the persons of power, the courts, whoever it might be in, uh, in their culture. And I think Revelation 12, actually, this is, this is so important. Revelation 12 forces us to ask a very important question, and it's this. Is there really a higher throne? Is there really a court higher than the Supreme Court? Is there a final court that, is, that stands beyond and above the court of human opinion? Are polls and politicians and professors and pastors even, are they the final word? Is the tyranny of Caesar or the tyranny of Twitter 
right? In, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about Twitter storms and the way that social media can absolutely uh, destroy someone's reputation, can destroy an idea or a concept in a, in a way that just is basically like a, uh, an online or a digital lynching. And it, so is, is, does Twitter really have the last word? And that's, that's a question that's so important for us as Christians to think about. And actually, to, in, in engaging with non-Christians, someone who, someone who may look at Revelation and think, oh, this is a bunch of hooey. It's all a bunch of, uh, it's just, you know, symbols and weird stuff, and it's just kind of bizarre. Revelation 12 and the book as a whole is presenting us with the question, is there anything more than human opinion? And if the highest court in the land decides that one race or one ethnicity is inferior to another, is that the case? Or if the highest court in the land decides that, that a certain segment of society, the unborn or the elderly, simply don't matter, that they aren't really fully human, does that really, is that really the case? Is that the final word? So, of course, the earliest followers of Jesus said no. They said, and they said no because Jesus himself said no. See, Jesus, Jesus not only appealed to divine justice, he regularly portrayed himself. Listen to this. He portrayed himself as the climactic agent of divine justice. He says, many will say to me on that day, away from me, I never knew you. I'm sorry, many people, say, many people will say to me on that day, uh, Lord, Lord, did I not obey? Did I not follow? Do your will? Did I do miracles in your, in your name? And, and he will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. See, Revelation speaks of both uh, a wrath upon the Lamb, but also the wrath of the Lamb. So, um, so let me read these verses here, and we'll talk about what, what the dragon is up to after being defeated. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two great wings, I'm sorry, was given to the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the riches, the, the beauty, the wonder, the mystery, the profundity of your word. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, again, this is, this, this, I chose to just a... a take a smaller chunk today just to give us uh, some breathing room here. In verses 13 through 17, we see that, that we see the, the evil and we see the dragon defeated. We see very simply that though he's defeated, he is determined to deceive the woman. Though defeated, he is determined to deceive the woman. How? With a flood 
of lies. Let's talk about this. Again, so we see in verse 13 that he has been defeated. Verse 13 says, the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth. He sees that he has lost his case. He has lost his argument, that he has lost access to the courtroom where the, where the, final, uh, the final decisions, if you will, are made. He's lost access to heaven. And when he sees this, he is enraged. He's enraged. In fact, you see that if you back up a verse to verse 12, in the second half of the verse, it says, But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury. Why? Because he knows that his time is short. We can, almost all of us can relate to that. None of us like to be, to lose, right? Often when we lose, our anger comes up. And in his anger, he takes it out on the people of God seeking to deceive them. And let me just briefly make a, a note there. I, the, the scriptures very clearly speak of anger as something that can be a good thing. Obviously, God can be angry. And Jesus himself on occasion was certainly angry. And yet, you know, overwhelmingly, as, as James 1 says, anger does not bring about justice. That so often our anger is a sign that we have allied ourselves with the evil one. The evil one is the accuser, and so often in our anger, we, just like the accuser, we, make our, we appoint ourselves prosecutor. And we prosecute and condemn, and we can do so in loud and angry words, intimidating with fists. We can do it. We can do it silently and simply just, just pretend like you're like someone else is dead. But so often, anger. And it's so interesting that the evil one, twice here in these in these in this text, is, is noted to be as one who is filled with fury. Verse twelve or seventeen. The dragon was enraged. There is an anger here that is livid, is so sure of itself and so willing to appoint itself judge, jury, and executioner. So again, he is the though the dragon is defeated, he is determined, we see in these following verses, to deceive the woman, to do so with literally a flood of lies. Look at verse 15. Then from his mouth a serpent spewed, water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. It's very important here that it mentions the dragon's mouth, from his mouth. The idea here is that, that, that the, the, of course, the mouth being the instrument of, of language. This flood is a metaphorical in the sense it's a flood of lies. It's seeking to deceive the church in any way it possibly can and then we see, however we see it in, in the face of this deception, is, is, a, uh, is a divine deliverance. And we see that both in 14 and in 16. In verses 14 it says, The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. This is already mentioned in verse 6. Where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. So we, we see here a deliverance, and it's a divine deliverance in the sense that we see the woman ge- being given these, these two wings of an eagle to fly. And in, in the Old Testament, the image of, of an eagle, of an eagle's wings, is, is time and time again a, uh, a, a metaphor for divine 
protection. We see it in, for example, in Exodus 19, where God says that he carried Israel as, um, as a, on, on eagle's wings and protected her. This notion of protection, of, of, uh, and it's a divine enabling. It's, it's something where the woman is totally vulnerable. She has no possibility of escape, and yet she's given, uh, or, or there's, a, there's a provision that is clearly from somewhere else. Clearly, um, someone or something is looking out for her, and so it's a divine deliverance. And we see the same thing in, in verse 16. In response to the, the torrent, this flood that uh, the dragon pours out of its mouth to, to, to sweep her away, we read in verse 16, but the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Again, the point of the, these imagery of the wings, of the earth opening its mouth, is to communicate an unexpected, unanticipated deliverance. That again and again and again, God is saying that against the, the wiles of the evil one, against the, the, the flood of lies, that God is able to preserve his church, to preserve his people, and he will do so almost always in ways that are incredibly unexpected. And you can see that throughout the life of the church, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can see ways in which God has preserved the church of Jesus Christ. So again, though defeated, the dragon is determined to deceive the woman who, who time and time again is divinely delivered. And if I could just make a brief note here about the, 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 the language here in verse um, in verse 14, it speaks of how the woman flees to the desert, to the wilderness, uh, to, for, and where she would be cared for. And it says, for a time, times, and half a time. This language of, of time, times, and half a time, it's uh, here the, the, the idea of time, um, the, the Greek kairos, has to do with the idea of, um, of a season. Uh, 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 and, and really a year, a, a season in the sense of a co- full completion of a year. So it's t- times, times, and half a time is a poetic way of speaking of three and a half years. Time, times, that's two times, and then a half a, half a time, three and a half years. And that three and a half year period shows up several different places in Revelation. And in, really it's rooted in, in the book of Daniel where it speaks of this notion of three and a half a period of three and a half that is half of a seven, with the idea being that this is a time of, it's, it's indefinite, it's incomplete, it's not the full time, it's not the full story. There's more to, there's more to, the, um, to the narrative, there's more to what God's people are experiencing than, um, than this particular time of, of persecution, of struggle. So with that, we see, again, the idea being, the central idea in these verses is, is, is that the, the dragon, or the devil, though defeated, is determined, just determined, to deceive the woman. Well, um, as we look at that, I want to ask the question, um, who else has faced the lies of the devil in the wilderness? We see this woman fleeing to the wilderness. She's facing the flood of lies from the devil. Who else has faced the lies of the devil in the wilderness? And of course, the answer is Jesus. If you recall, Jesus was, t- was tempted three times by Satan in the wilderness. In fact, Satan said to God, he basically said, if, if you are God's son, you shouldn't have to experience sacrifice. 
I mean, you're hungry. Tell those, that, tell those stones to become bread. You shouldn't. If you're God's son, you shouldn't have to experience sacrifice. If you're God's son, you shouldn't have a low status, right? Where the, the evil one says, look, if you just bend and worship me, I'll give you all the glory, all the influence, all the power that you could, all the authority you could possibly want over the world. You shouldn't be a nobody. You shouldn't have low status if you're God's son, and then finally he says, if you're God's son, you shouldn't have to submit. You shouldn't have to obey. You should be able to you know, do whatever you want whenever you want. And of course, Jesus in response says precisely the opposite. Because I'm God's son, I'm uniquely qualified to sacrifice. I'm uniquely qualified to, 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 to embrace a low status. I don't need the acclaim of the world. I don't need to be a big deal. Because I'm a God's son, I am uniquely gifted to, to submit fully. I can trust him. Whatever he says, jump, I say how high. And so the evil one in the wilderness is seeking to deceive Jesus about the nature of his very identity. And we see that, that notion of, of, of battling deception battling the evil one in the desert. And again, the desert being metaphorical for times of, of uncertainty, times of where it just there's no, there's no, it seems of no life, no provision, no care. And, 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 there's a, and there's a, the question is, here I am in this desert, what a disaster, and will God provide? Will he really be there for me? Does he really know what he's doing? And that, that really leads us to this, this, this central point in verse 17, that here, deception is the devil's central strategy for destroying God's people throughout the ages. Verse 17 makes that clear. We have this particularity in verses 13 through 16. But then in 17, you have this statement that's intended to say, hey, look, this isn't just about a particular situation, but this is, for, this, is, this is the experience of all of God's people. Verse 17 says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. It's a way of referring to all the, all the rest of God's people throughout the church era. That is to say, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. So I want to ask, I want to spend the rest of my time just saying, what does this really look like? What does it look like for the dragon to wage war upon the woman with a flood of lies and to, to, war, to wage war against the, her offspring, all who would keep his commands and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus? Well, the devil deceives us. Let me, let me just preface this by saying, you know, so often when we think about spiritual warfare, or we think about the devil or Satan, we often think very um, sort of spectacularly. We think very fantastically about uh, things like, um, you know, demons. We think about things like demon possession. And, and I'm not, those, are, those are right in the Bible. They're, 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 they're real, uh, they're, they're they're phenomena that have a reality to them. Absolutely. I don't want to minimize that. But we're, what we're seeing here in Revelation and really throughout the, the, the New Testament is that, that the primary way in which the evil one works is through deception. And, and for, this, for the remainder of chapter 12 and all on in through 13, we're going to see the evil one uh, engage in a, an overwhelming uh, propaganda effort. We're going to speak generically today, but then in 13 and 14, chapter 13, we're going to see the ways in which the evil one enlists the institution, institutions of our culture, 
political, social, academic. To, he enlists those in ways that are truly seeking to deceive the people of God. So let's generically, though, I want to spend the rest of our time just asking, what does this look like for you and me? Well, the devil deceives us by slandering, slandering uh, three different persons. Slandering God, slandering self, ourselves, and slandering others. So the evil one would want nothing more for you and me to believe that God is uncaring, that God is incompetent, and that God is not in control. He would love for us to believe those things. He just doesn't really care about me. He doesn't have time for me. He's over me. He's done with me. To believe that he's, to believe that God is incompetent. He just really, what in the world is he up, what's he, what's he up to? It's all a mistake. It's all a disaster. He would love for us to believe that God is not in control, that he, that really, that there's all kinds of forces and factors outside of his control, that he did not see this crisis coming. He did not see um, this sin happening. He did not see this, this relationship breaking. He did not see these things. He didn't see it coming. It was all a mistake. It was all chaotic. But of course, in Revelation, God is presented as God of great wonder. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. A God of endless reliability. A God who is endlessly resourceful. Who is able to bring good out of evil, life out of death, blessing out of curse. He is a God who is in every way a God of wonder, who makes us gasp who is able at all times and in all ways to work his purposes for good. He is a God of wonder. He is a God of wisdom and revelation. He is the creator God who knows all things and sustains all things, who knows how we work inside and out. And of course, he's a God of not only of wonder and wisdom, but a God of welcome, a God of welcome. Through the blood of the Lamb, men and women from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation are, are brought into the fold, are brought into the people of God who receive the seal and who are kept for all eternity. He's a God of wonder, of wisdom, and welcome, and perhaps most importantly, a God who wins. He will win. So again, how does the evil one work? He wants us to, to, us to believe lies about God. But secondly, he wants to believe lies about self, ourselves. In fact, I'm going to put these two together. God, he wants us to be lies about ourselves and others. How so? He wants us to believe that we or others are either heroes or zeros. He wants us to believe that we are either too big or too small. I don't know about you, that's a constant struggle for me. Some days I'm like, look at me go. I'm so amazing. I'm so perfect. I'm a hero. That's what I want to be. I want to be the hero. In other days, I think, man, just the opposite. I'm a zero. I'm a nothing. I'm worthless. I believe these lies one way or the other, and they are absolutely from the evil one. And he wants us to see others that way. That person's a zero. They're nothing. Oh, that person's the answer. They're, they're the hero. Oh, if only I can know them. If only I can um, if only I have a stronger relationship. Whatever it might be, we, we either worship people or, put people or we denigrate them. We make them into heroes 
or zeros. But of course, Christianity, Revelation, says that humans are both very special, but also very sinful. It says that humans have great worth, and yet have great unworthiness. That humans have incredible dignity, but also incredible depravity. So how does the evil one deceive? What is this flood of lies? It's lies about God, lies about self, lies about, uh, about others. But finally, it's also lies about society. And this is where we're going. This is where we're moving in Revelation uh, 13. It's lies that, 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 that basically he embeds within society. And let me just give you one example to kind of whet, up, whet our appetite of where we're going to be going in the next few weeks. Uh, in, the, in a wonderful book, uh, Greg Lukianoff uh, and Jonathan Haidt. Um, it's a book that got my 15-year-old daughters reading. Um, it's a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's a New York Times bestseller. Again, it's called The Coddling of the American Mind. And if you want a great summer read, it's, it's, a, it's a small little book, but it's by, written by two professors who began to just notice how teens and college students and 20-somethings are particularly uh, being affected by certain what they call untruths in our culture today. Now listen to these three untruths. Listen to these three lies. And I think they fit so well with the agenda of the evil one. These lies are first, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Isn't that a great turn of phrase? What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. You know, so as professors, they live on campus environments where when someone is triggered, then suddenly that's the end of it for them. It's it's this thing that if anyone challenges me, if anyone disagrees with me, if anyone says something that, that is somehow harmful to me, that actually makes me weaker. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. The second lie is this. Always trust your feelings. Always trust your feelings. That's such a common, you see that in Disney films, you see it throughout the media, it's, and it's, it's encouraged in our, in our schools of higher education. Always trust your feelings. And the third is this, life is a battle between good people and bad people. And it's an incredibly divisive lie. In fact, last week we saw, right? We, we asked the question, in, in this deeper conflict that Revelation 12, 13 to 14 presented us with, in this deeper conflict, where are the non-Christians? And we answered profoundly, what? They're not there. In this conflict, they are non-combatants. They are not the enemies. As Paul says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And yet it's so typical today for, for our culture to divide, uh, or to divide people into good or bad. Republican versus Democrat, rich versus poor. We have a thousand ways of intersecting of, of dividing up uh, with labels and, and, and titles and, and backgrounds, uh, a ways that we see we divide people up into a battle between good people and bad people. So again, this wonderful book, I think The Coddling of the American Mind, I think it's, it speaks very eloquently of three lies that, um, that we are embracing as a society that we're hearing uh, in ver- through various voices in our culture. Now, briefly, how do Christians fight these lies? Well, we do so, first and foremost, through liturgy and song. Like, for example, when we read the summary of the law, as you did earlier this morning, we, we read the summary of the law, and we realize, you know what? My significance is not in how smart 
I am, or beautiful, how beautiful I am, or how athletic, or how wealthy I am. My worth is found in my ability to love, to love God and to love neighbor. I'm, my priorities are therefore recalibrated. I'm not, I'm not here, I'm not I'm here to make money. My, my greatest hope is not, is not to somehow make as much money as I can before I die so that I'll be so fulfilled on my deathbed. No, this, this great, the summary of the law is there so that on our deathbed, we realize that we lived life well. We didn't buy into the lies of our culture and say, go, 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 and more, more, more. But we actually realize that life is about relationships because we've learned in the liturgies, week, Sunday in and Sunday out, that life is about love. Through liturgy and song, we, we fight the lies. So, for example, we, we sing a song, we sing a song like, uh, that says, has lyrics like this You give and take away. You give and take away. Still, my heart will choose to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And as we sing those words, we begin to wonder, Is that, can I really say that? Can I really say, Will my heart still say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even in this trial, even in this hardship where I am, God, you have taken this thing away. It's so hard. We believe, we fight the lies through liturgy and song. We fight the lies through the Lord's Supper. We think of the the liturgy, the, the Lord's Supper liturgy prayer that begins this way. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. Isn't that beautiful? What if every week this morning, or you put somehow you put you wrote a card, you wrote those words on a card. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. Or just put somewhere, Father, in your infinite love, you made me for yourself. Do you believe that? That you were made, that God made you for himself. He wanted you here. You're not an accident. You're not your height, your shape, your all that you are, your temperament, your character, everything about you is of his design and he loves you and he and you're here because he wants you here because he wants a relationship with you see that's the lord's that's the lord's supper liturgy how else do we fight these lies not only through liturgy and song and sacrament we sell we, we fight the lies of the evil one through our daily devotional a daily devotional it's about defying those lies for example one of the things I do is I have meditations in the morning. I meditate. What I mean by meditate is that there are some truths that I need to hear daily, hourly, moment by moment. Why? Because they're so incredibly counterintuitive. My heart is so bent on the lie, so convinced of the lie, that I need to hear the truth again and again and again. For example, I need to hear the truth of the question that Paul asked the Corinthians. What makes you any different? See, I often think I'm different. I think I'm special. I think I'm better. And Paul says, Bruce, okay, so even if you are a little different, why? What makes you different? Answer, God's grace. I'm no different from anyone. I'm no better than anyone. And yet my, my heart is constantly producing this propaganda. The evil one is applauding, saying, yes, you are different. You are special. You're so much better. You're a, you're, you're, you're a special forces. Right? This is notion that somehow I'm better, I'm different. In every hour of every day, I need to hear, ask, hear that question. What makes you any different? And so we fight the lies of the evil one through daily devotional, by medit- meditating on things like that, by not only meditation and daily devotions, but thanksgiving. 
I have a written list of things that I have to remind myself of, things that are beautiful. Think of, for example, of my health. 42 years old, I'm rarely ever sick. I have perfect health. Think of the education, the opportunities I've had to learn. Think of the fact that I have five amazing children. You know what? 50 years ago, my wife and I were, we, we were being infertile. We, um, we would have had no children. In fact, 100 years ago, if we had had our twins, uh, both of them would have died. In fact, Sarah probably would have died in childbirth. If we had lived at any other place at any other time in history, we would not have five wonderful children. So let me ask you this morning, what lies are you believing? Have you identified and named the lies that you just find so appealing, so intoxicating? You're so sure of them. How are you fighting them? Are you fighting them through liturgy and song? Are you fighting through daily meditation? Are you fighting them finally? Are you fighting them through fellowship? Are you sharing truth at home? Sharing truth in small groups or Sunday school. I don't know if how many of you were there this past Sunday for the Zoom uh, Sunday school. It was amazing. God showed up in an incredible way as we shared about this Wall Street Journal article about this written by this Duke professor speaking of how he and his wife in the final stages of her, uh, her, um, her uh, illness or terminal illness, how they shared an intimacy. Why? Because they learned to tell the truth to speak honestly about life and and it's most difficult. They learned to grieve together. And as we talked about that, some of you shared, you were vulnerable. Uh, You were were like a woman who was just emitting light from her. Light and life. At great cost, the vulnerability that was so just amazing. It was so beautiful. Think of Dawn and others who shared. Thank you so much for doing this. See, it's through those fellowships, it's through the times in small groups where we share our struggles, we share our frustrations, we share our fears, we share how, how much we don't know about. That those are the moments when, when that fellowship and the lies of the evil one are exposed for what they are. You know, my wife and Sarah and I, we, I'll, I'll close with this. My wife, Sarah, and I, we struggle with this. We struggle to share. We struggle to be really close. We struggle to connect. And it's always these really precious moments that we had just recently, this past week, where I don't just by divine, by divine uh, grace, we just started sharing. Sharing fears, sharing hopes, sharing frustrations. And we, we did so, by God's grace, we did so not in a hopeless way, well, not in a cynical way, but it, I wouldn't really say it was a hopeful way. It was just somewhere this middle ground, just a lot of uncertainty, a lot of self-suspicion, a lot of questioning ourselves, but sharing, sharing truth. The words of Frederick Buechner are very important. I don't know if you remember the, the book that we read, Telling Secrets. He writes, I have come to believe that by and large, the human family all has the same secrets. Secrets which are both very telling and very important to tell. So let me ask you, who really knows you? Who really knows you? So you have to have, we have to have fellowship. We have to have friendship if we are to fight the flood of lies 
from the evil one. Let me close with this. In Revelation 12, we see the highest court of the cosmos, that in that court, the prosecution's case, indeed the prosecutor himself, has been thrown out. It is finished. It is done. You you and I, as the people of God, stand before that throne uncondemnable. You know, I don't know if you know this, but under the fifth commandment, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, under the fifth amendment, uh, a person cannot be tried twice for the same crime. This means that if you went to trial and were acquitted, the prosecution can't try the same case against you again. It's called double jeopardy. It also means that you, you can't be punished twice for the same crime. Here, brothers and sisters, hear the good news. Revelation insists that you have already been tried in the highest court of the cosmos, and you have been acquitted. And you can never be judged again. Revelation insists even more that the punishment has been paid, that justice has been served, that the flames of God's wrath have been forever extinguished. Can you believe that? Isn't that just astonishing? That never will you ever answer for your sin before God. That all that is left in, before him is a joy, is a love, is a pleasure, is a delight in you. Yes, he disciplines. Yes, he can be displeased by our wrongs, but he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is our father who has, who has welcomed us into his family. He is the judge who has forever pardoned you and me, sinners, though we continue to be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful, what beautiful imagery we continue to see here in Revelation. Father, I pray that as a church, we would be a a community of truth tellers, not convenient truth, not cold, impersonal, dogmatic truth. Father, not third person truth, but real truth, relational truth, life-giving truth, confessing, humble, hope-giving truth. Lord Jesus, you have said, my kingdom is a kingdom of truth. And I pray that as we tell the truth, the lies of the evil one would be exposed for what they are. That we would, we would, you would enable us to stand so firmly against the lies of the, against the torrent, the flood that comes our way, not only from our hearts, not only from others, but from a culture, from a, a world order, a, a system, a structure that is in every way bent to make us believe lies about you, about ourselves, and about others. Lord Jesus. There are are more than a few in our congregation here who really are struggling. They are hurting. They have given way to despair. They've given way to loneliness. They've given way to anger. Father, I pray that we would would seek to be part of your, your rescue plan. And we draw closer to you, closer to each other. May you enable us to be one, to be one true body, one family. Father, please send your spirit and make Good Shepherd a beacon of truth, a a, a place of maternal love where we are a source of light, a source of life at great cost to ourselves as we follow the lamb wherever he goes. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.